take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans. Providentially, we turn to this passage this morning, Romans chapter 6. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome. I join with Jerry in welcoming you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, you'll see one right in front of you. Grab that, follow with us, turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6. This morning, as we consider all that's taken place in this place alone this morning, you might be saying this is not an ordinary morning for those that follow Christ. And one may wonder, is it because the choir sang before us? Is that what makes it a different morning? This is Choir Sunday. Is that what it is? Is that why it's different? Is it because we sing different songs or we have people singing songs to us? Is that why it's different today? Or is today different because today is one of those pillar days in the year where you have family get-togethers? And you just get together and you make sure you do that, get some special food on, dress up especially. Is that why it's different today? Why is this not an ordinary morning? Why does it seem like there's so much attention to this morning today? That's the question, right? Well, friends, it is because today is the day followers of Christ have always marked as the day we remember the day that death died. On this day 2,000 years ago, humanity observed the death of death. It's been said, and I only repeat, if the cross was death's check, then the empty tomb, the resurrection of Christ, was God Almighty's checkmate. This morning already you've heard the account of the death of death in Luke 24, an empty tomb. The angels asking, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why? This morning we've already read and responded from 1 Corinthians 15, our resurrected body. Remember, someone asks, how are the dead raised? One imagines with natural sensibilities, we can't grasp that, can we? How are the dead raised? With what body? We read that. Now as we continue our study in Romans, we consider the implications of death's demise. How did death die? And does it die for all of us? And what does it mean for those dead to death? The Bible answers those questions. Let us read the passage up next for us beginning in verse 5 of the 6th chapter of Romans. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, what a joy this morning to not only consider that we are now under grace, not condemnation, law, but that we too, following your Son, will rise. Your Son has removed the sting of death in our lives. How can we express our response rightly to you, you and to that truth? But Lord, we pray as we look at your word and consider these truths anew, that you would press them into us so that we would walk them before you. God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We read, look at verse 8 again. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. There it is, Westmount. The implications of dying with Christ is living with Christ. Death has died in Christ. Westmount, let's just sum that up simply this. To die with Christ, as we've been looking at in this study, is to live with Christ. Let's consider now what it means first to die with Christ. That's our first point. Crucified with him. This passage opens with verse 5. Let's go back there and read it. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Last week, if you recall, we noted how this chapter surveys for us the great doctrine of union with Christ. Which means, church, if you really have stopped believing in yourself, and if you have turned to believe on Christ and placed all your trust in Him, it's a lot, that's what it is. If that's true, and consider, which means also you have been baptized into Him, which we looked at last week. This is a spiritual baptism. If all of that is true of your humanity now in Christ and you're no longer in Adam, then it means, Christian, here it is, you are now one with Christ. Your identity is in him. You have union with him. So when verse 5 says that the believer has been united with him in a death like his, It does not mean, and we noted this last week, that you did or will die just like Jesus on a cross. It doesn't mean that. However, Christian, it does mean that you share in some way in that death. We covered that. You did not do it. You could not do it. But you are in it with Christ and experience it. Union with Christ means that those in him, not those still in Adam, those in Jesus, are united with Christ in a death like his. That language, by the way, and I pray it's comfortable for us now, after Romans 5, is solidarity language. This is all that we've studied in our look at Romans. This is union by way of Christ as our representative. He is our head, remember? 
He died, thus what? We all die because we follow him. He represents us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, One has died for all, therefore all have died. In context there, one has died for all of those in Christ, and therefore all have died because they are in Christ. Exactly what we've seen in Romans 5. Now, believer, that is not the only way in which we are united with Christ. It's a profound, huge way, if you will. It's not the only way. As we've sung and read and prayed this morning, we're also united with him. Look at verse 5 again. In a resurrection like his. Now, listen, Paul is going to come back to this. This is profound, as we see on a morning like this. So Paul's going to pause for a moment, talk about the death. We'll come back to this in verse 8. But first... He needs to develop our death with Christ further. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You know, you look at a verse like that, there's a whole lot of theology crammed into one verse. And really, it's a a connecting verse Paul is using to take us from where we've been to where he's going. But as you look at this verse, there's nothing really new here, Westmount. Paul has covered this already in Romans, and here in verse 6, he's simply pulling it all together. So let's review. Number one, look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self or old man, which in context here, is the kind and the type of man we had in Adam. That's what's in view. And by the way, old here, look at that word old. Again, like the word newness in verse 4, old here is referring to quality and to nature. This is not chronology. This is specifically talking to one's nature and quality. So in other words, what are we saying? This is not the next step in a sequence. This is not just flick the switch. This is radically more. This is regeneration. This is of new quality and type. This is our old self, the old man, the one in Adam, crucified with Christ. Listen, crucifixion is not just suffering or extreme suffering. It is that. It is that indeed. But to ancient ears, and I trust to recent ones today, we know crucifixion to be more. Crucifixion, more than just referring to suffering, is referring to death. That's the point. The ancient ear would know exactly what is in view. And here, when we think about death, we think about the death of the old self, of the old man. The death of that humanity in Adam, it's been put to death. It's been crucified. And that is precisely Paul's point. Believer, listen, in Christ you've been crucified to your old head. You're no longer represented by Adam. Again, we've studied this in chapter 5. We've had a headship transfer, Christian, from Adam to Christ, and we have a new humanity. So to be crucified with Christ means first that, Christian, your old self has died. Praise God. That's one. Two, look again at verse 6. The old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin here refers to the whole man, our whole self. Here, our old self in totality. This we covered last week. In Christ, the result of the Son of God as our head means that we, Christian, are now what? Dead to sin, right? 
It means, believer, recall that sin no longer has power over you. Penalty has been paid, and listen, the power removed. Sin, of course, it is true, does not die to the body. Its sin is still present and a threat. However, the body has died to sin. You see that? Sin no longer has mastery over your body. So to be crucified with Christ means the once body of sin is brought to nothing. And thirdly, look at the end of verse 6, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at that word enslaved. Paul introduces imagery here he will develop and employ later in the chapter. Sin as slave master. We're going to come back to that. What is important to note for now is that the Bible does not say this, and this is key. Paul doesn't say you're now Christian out from under sin and free to yourself. He doesn't say you've been free and you're no longer under anything. I mean, that would be a very modern libertine sensibility, wouldn't it? I'm now free from everything, and that's what I've wanted. But it's never that way biblically. In fact, if we just read the next verse, verse 7, and stop there, we might think so. Look at verse 7 with me. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And you could hear a whole collective bunch of, yeah, that's right, right? Yes, the one who has died has been set free. But listen, more accurately, and you might have a note in your Bible here, more accurately that word is the same we've seen for justified from sin. Rightly would read, one who has died has been justified from sin. And that's so important as we're reading this text and following in context. This is legal. This is legal release. So the one dead to sin is set free and justified from sin. Again, this is all that we've covered. Go further back into chapter 3 and chapter 4 in particular. To be justified is to be made right before God. To be declared what? Not guilty. Gavel down. But listen, to be declared not guilty is never in any court a declaration of self-liberation. It never is that, is it? Consider the courts today. It's not not guilty. Go do what you want to do. We'd like to think so, but it's not. The pardoned criminal is not free to return to a society of his own law and standard, is he? No, he instead is not guilty, which means legally he is reconciled back to society. He's free now in that society. See that? In the same way, a divine declaration of not guilty means we are pardoned in the heavenlies. We are set free and justified. But listen, not back to ourselves, not to run back to Adam. But we're free now because we're reconciled back to God and back to Creator. Praise Him. To be crucified with Christ, then, is to be returned and reconciled back to God. We'll see this more in the weeks to come. It's a transfer of headship. Because, beloved, we're still enslaved. The question is, who is master? It means, again, as we're going to see, that we have a new representative, a body of sin brought to nothing, but a new master and a new Lord. That is what it means to be crucified with him. Now, that is glorious, especially on this morning, isn't it? That's glorious news. Praise God. But there is much more in the death of death. We're not only crucified with him, but also, our second point, we're raised with him. Raised with him. Let's continue in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Can the truths get more glorious? Glorious. 
Right? What a passage. Now, look at that. Now, as if to say, Paul is saying, now that our being crucified with him is clear, let's move on. That's what he does. And the implication of those united in Christ's death is this. If you're united in Christ's death, you too will be united in Christ's life. Beloved, on a morning like this, let us state this plainly. Let's be clear. This is life after death. Do we get that? Life after death. Life after death. Life after death. Maybe you're listening now. Life after death. This is resurrection, not resuscitation, not reincarnation. Life after death. I repeat that for myself first and for you because we go through our weeks and we don't meditate on that, do we? We go through weeks fearing our death and not realizing we will live after we die. Remember back in verse 5, we were presented with the logical implication of our union with Christ in his death. Look at it again. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, look at this, beloved, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Wow. Christian, your union with Christ is not just union in death, but listen again, union after death. Church, if there is ever something we need to be clear on, it is this, especially today. It is the resurrection. That's why there's joy in the camp today. You know, we do not think on the resurrection enough, do we? We think more on death. We do not understand the resurrection. We like to understand lots of other things, don't we? And we certainly confuse the resurrection with many other things, don't we? Like being resuscitated. Often against all odds, we love those stories that so-and-so just came back. They were resuscitated, and it was improbable, and it's a wonderful story And they write books and make movies about it. Often that is being brought back from a state of unconsciousness and maybe a prolonged unconsciousness. At other times, it is supernatural. The resuscitation is supernatural. And you know these accounts. But it's still resuscitation. Think biblically. Jairus' daughter in Mark 5 or Lazarus in John 11. That's where there's no human capability to bring the person back. But supernaturally, as a sign and as a proof and as evidence and as a pointer to the true resurrection, Christ or his apostles do that. We consider those supernatural revivals as if they're resurrections, but remember, they are not. They're not. And you say, why? Jairus' daughter and Lazarus would both go on to what? Die. Really. Truly. Finally. And as you see, the ultimate solution then is not just how to revive someone. It's got to be more, doesn't it? The question is, how does one experience resurrection? How does one gain life after death? So why does resurrection confusion abound, especially if this is so important? Why? It's a good question, isn't it? Why are we confused about the resurrection? 
Well, I want to be frank with you this morning. Again, myself first and foremost. We simply don't believe. You can't wrap your head around the resurrection. You just don't believe it. You're like, I, I, I need to do this because I'm in church and I really want to believe. But God, help my unbelief with the resurrection. We don't believe, do we? That we will live after we die. Because if we really did believe that, we would not fear death, would we? Friends, here's the reality for most, and we're swimming in this current. Life after death is fantasy. It is farce. It is fiction. And let me submit to you, one of the real growing problems facing us today as a culture, society, and as a people is this. While death and the culture of death increases around us, medically, legally, more funerals, as we all testify to, and so on. It's just increasing. We keep turning to something in response. It's impossible. And what is it? We keep turning to try and avoid death. That's our solution collectively, isn't it? Well, we just need to avoid death altogether. That's our solution. But friends, we cannot avoid death, and we certainly can't beat death. We cannot slow down death, and we can't stop death. All of us, Every one of you in this room, myself included, will die. All of us are going to die. That is certainty. Not if, but when. And we see here in the Bible, even Jesus died. Did you see that? That is God himself of his own will when he came down, took his life, and laid it down. If the God-man died, why do we think we can avoid death? We know we can't, so we'd rather just not think about it, thanks. There's far too much chaos going on in the world, so we keep living, pretending, and denying. But here's the problem. If that is you today, you will die. And I ask you this morning, and then what? And then what? Think on it. You will die. And then what? Do you know where you're headed? Are you certain? Or do you fear death? And if you fear, listen, do you simply fear death alone? Or do you, as you should, fear what is coming after death? The Bible, the, the very words of God, the one that puts your body together in your mother's womb, says this, it's appointed for man to die once, says architect, says creator. And after that comes bliss, judgment. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, says God. There it is. Death is certain for all. The Bible confirms, and then what? Judgment. Listen, our compounded problem is that we only fear death, not what's coming after it. That's our problem. And that's why you see what you see today. You have a mass of humanity fearing death. What a privilege it is on this day to herald to you, if this is you, good news. It's just such a joy to herald to you good news. Today, you need not fear anymore. Do you, do you know that, friend? You don't need to fear anymore. Today, 
your fear can end. If you turn from denying and suppressing the truth, if you turn from trusting yourself and your frightful, hidden, closet fears of death, Today, if you turn from your sins, repent, trust Christ, believe with your whole life, not in lips, not in token expression. That means I throw myself out and I throw everything into Jesus. Then you too will follow him from death to life, just as he did. Look at verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Listen. Death no longer has dominion over him. That means as Christ was raised from the dead to live to never die again. That means as Christ conquered sin and death, where they both became powerless, so too you. You, the one that truly follows Jesus, you too will be resurrected after you die. You too, thus, consider with me, will never die again. Death for you as well will no longer have dominion over you. Sting gone, power out. It means you will die soon, that is for certain. 100% mortality rate for us all. But the death will not be on to judgment and eternal punishment. Revelation 20, you won't be in that group. Or that great throne of judgment, that will not be you. But that death will give way to justification, which is right standing before God in Christ and subsequently eternal life. Listen, not in anguish, but in the presence of the one that made you. For a time, for a thousand years, forever. Forever. That's what's promised for all those that follow Christ. Truly, as you're studying here in Romans 6, they will follow him in death and in life. So you also, look at verse 10, so you also. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christian, as Christ died to sin, meaning he took it on and paid its penalty, as Christ did that once for all, defeating sin and was raised to life to God, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is how, believer, you will be raised with him. Again, this is your union with Christ. What a glory this morning. Union with Christ. How you experience that with your head. And it shouldn't be that way, right? We should be in Adam, but we're in Christ. To be united with him is to die in him and to be raised in him. Now that resurrection is coming after you die. But until then, Paul says, there are implications in your life now. Remember, we don't say to the newly baptized, there you go, let's await to the resurrection. No, Rise to newness of life. There's implications today. There is a therefore, look at it in verse 12, a therefore consequence. Resurrection is not yet, but your newness of life in Christ is already. And thus we turn to the last few verses in our final point, living in him. This is the implication, living in him. Westman, we've commented with the text through this study on the reality of our new position and identification versus 
our new practice and imitation. By that we mean simply this. If we are justified in Christ, we not only are made right before God with a new position before Him, but we also have a new identity in Jesus Christ. And as we have said, that new position and identity has implications for living, doesn't it? Listen, the New Testament knows absolutely nothing of a newly positioned, newly identified believer in Jesus that continues to live in his or her old self in Adam. That is absolutely foreign to the New Testament. There's no, well, I, I understand you're Adam. Yes, I understand. We'll get there. No, none of that. There's no Christians inching around, remember, like caterpillars in their old self. Exhortations, expectations, commands, and realities of Christians flying with their new wings. Again, we've covered that well, and Paul has more to say on that soon. The end of the chapter particularly. With respect to the context here, the apostle simply introduces the implication. And again, we'll have more to say on that next time. Let's then close by looking at verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. There's the therefore. Here's the implication. This is because of this. Look. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. These verses move us from the indicative, you've heard that, the what is true, the what is true, to the imperative, what you must do. From the position, as we've said, to the practice. And listen, there's always implications for truth, right? Your identity, your position, realities about you always have implications that flow out of you, always. It doesn't matter who you are. No different here, of course, and all the more, we would say, if identity has truly been regenerated. And this is absolutely crucial for the Christian to understand. Why? Because, Christian, you and I are prone to a disconnect here, aren't we? The Word of God exhorts the professing follower of Jesus simply this. The Word of God exhorts the professing follower of Jesus to act like one. That's the point. You... You have the housing, you have the engine, live it. And it goes without saying, we need that command. Why? Because we are absolutely prone not to, aren't we? Now, there really are only two reasons, and I would submit to you this resurrection morning, two reasons alone why we do act according to the old man. Number one, we truly have a new position in Christ, but forget the power that comes with it. Beloved, if this is you, remember that you are dead to sin. Sin doesn't reign in your body anymore. Thus, sin no longer reigns actually, legally, truly in your mortal body. Verse 12. So thus, you're not powerless to obey sin. It doesn't matter what worldly counselors tell you. You're not, you're not enslaved to it if you're in Christ. Sin's power is broken in you. You no longer are powerless in presenting your members, your bodily faculties, as instruments of unrighteousness, verse 13. We have to 
wrestle with the word of God if we disbelieve that. It's plain as day. In Adam, yes, you had no choice, and this is the point. But now in Christ, you're free to obey God as you ought to, and you can. Look at verse 13. It goes on to say you've been now what? Brought from death to life. Why would you want to keep practicing death? I appreciate what one commentator graphically described it as this. For the Christian, dabbling in that, it's sin living is like digging up a corpse for fellowship. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Try and find happiness with the dead. Again, as saved Christians, we need reminding, listen, we are new creations. But listen, still with a dying body prone to its own bent and way, there's no doubt. However, listen, we are now dead to sin. It means we are being sanctified. We certainly are in transition, sanctification, or between justification and glorification, but sin's power is done. Sin's dominion is broken and new habits are forming. And listen, here it is, if you are in Christ but forgetting, your trajectory will be in one direction. This way. This way. Two. So that would be one reason why we might live according to the old man. The second way is that you are actually still in Adam. You are still in that old self, and you actually have no union with Christ. Friend, if this is you, the problem is not forgetful thinking. Do you know what the problem is? False security. If your sin is a pattern in your life, and we know what that means, and your members keep obeying its passions, don't get out the calendar, look to conviction. If you keep presenting your instruments for sin, then listen, simply this, sin still has dominion over you. It's plain and simple. And there's no more loving thing that you can be told this morning. You are not simply a carnal Christian or a believer with an addictive personality, or a lover of Jesus that just went through a bad childhood experience. Listen, that's true of all of us, isn't it? For you, as opposed to verse 14, sin indeed has dominion over you. And even more, you are, end of verse 14, look at it with me, you are under law. Or said another way, as we have learned, you remain under condemnation. That's the context here. You remain guilty. You are not justified. You are not right before God. And things are not okay after your death right now. If that is you today, still in sin, still in Adam, then you are not living in him. You are not under grace. But, again, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't need to die that way. Today, I don't know what the rest of your life will give you. I don't. I know you're here in this moment to hear the word of God, and it is this. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. Repent and turn to Christ and live after death. Today, today, this very minute, you can be under grace. Not guilty, forgiven, 
and truly free. It means today you can turn from sin obedience and maybe the Lord has convicted you and you're just tired of it. Sin is an awful master, isn't it? Awful. Well, the chain can be cut today. Today you can receive pardon and forgiveness. Like many have said to me, you don't understand the sins I've done. And I say, I don't. But God does. And if you turn and repent, he forgives you. How is that? The grace that is this, the true death of death, not just in the eschaton at the end, but the death we live out with our own members every day can die. In your life right now, because of Christ and his obedience given to you, it means this Resurrection Sunday today can be the very first Resurrection Sunday that actually means something to you. Wouldn't that be glorious? Listen to me, beloved. Resurrection lies beyond death's control. Do you know that? Death cannot touch the resurrected life. What a hope. Resurrection means death dies to you. Death dies to you. Humanity's only hope, listen, your only hope is union with Christ. And listen to the word of God, Christ alone. Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, what a joy to herald that truth. What a joy. The death dies to the believer in Christ. We know your son is our only hope. We know union with him is our only hope. We know indeed it is your Son alone, but God, I pray that you would help us all to walk out in light of that truth as we sing it now. In Christ's name, amen.